But brethren, as we grow and as God's church grows, there is someone who resents all this. He does not like this at all. And the bigger we get, the more he is going to try to attack us. And I think most of us understand that. His name is Satan the devil. His name had been given in the in his creation as, of course, Lucifer, which means light bringer or shining star of the dawn. But when he rebelled against God and got vanity and wanted to compete with God, then his name was actually changed by God to Satan, which literally in the Hebrew means adversary or enemy. That's what his name means, literally in the Hebrew language, enemy or adversary. Most of you have read Isaiah 14. If any of you are new today, I'm not going to cover that because the vast majority know that. And my my purpose today is not just describe who Satan is, but how he operates and how to overcome him. But Satan was created by God as a great cherub. And you read Isaiah chapter 14, and you read Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel chapter 28, and you'll have those descriptions given there about how Satan came about and how God created him as a great super archangel and how he rebelled against God and was cast back down to this earth and became Satan the devil. When Christ began his ministry, Satan the devil immediately attacked him. I think most of us know that story. Christ was just beginning his ministry, and what's the first thing happened to Satan as he was getting ready to begin his ministry? Satan knew that, and so Satan attacked Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, if you would. The fourth chapter of Matthew in your Bible. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights... Now, brethren, don't any of you try that. I think I would die or you would die if we tried to fast 40 days and 40 nights because Christ had perfect health. He had never broken the physical laws of God. And, the, of course, the, the, wheat was, the wheat germ was in the wheat back then, and they had good food and good water and good air and good everything. So he was able to do that, and he didn't eat anything. He didn't drink any water or eat any food. And you can fast. I fasted once for a week with nothing. And I fasted many times for two, three, four days at a time. People, I remember my mother was a wonderful mother, but she was a typical Methodist. She didn't understand those things. And she said, oh, Rod, you'll just die. And I said, no, I won't die. <laughs> but, and you don't die, especially if you're in good health. But you've got to be sure you're in good health if you're going to fast more than a day or two. And be sure you can fast before you start to fast. But when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. And they say that after you fasted a week or two, your body's cells actually began to cry out for food. It's not just a sort of a hunger headache you have, as we often get the first two or three days of a fast. After day three or four, it sort of clears up and you have kind of a a peaceful thing that comes over. You don't have that same kind of hunger, frankly. But after a week or two, the very cells of your body begin to cry out for food. And Jesus had that. It was must have been a powerful hunger that he had at that point. And when the tempter came, he said, Now one thing to notice about Satan, brethren, Satan will try to find your weak point, and he will come after you where he thinks your weak point is. If your weak point is sex, and you let your mind wander on wrong kinds of sex, he will come after you in that way. 
If you're weak in regard to using liquor or drugs, he'll come after you in that way. If your weakness is at getting too involved in your business or a woman in her house and just taking all her time, remember Jesus told Martha, 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 you're troubled about many things, and Mary has chosen what is important. He can find your weakness, whatever it is, and he will try to get you where you're weak. Well, frankly, Christ didn't have any particular weakness, and Satan being carnal, of course, the epitome of carnality, and yet he was spirit being. He didn't, he was trying to find something, and he knew Christ must have had powerful hunger, so that's the first way he came after him, where he thought Christ must have a weakness there. And so he said, if you're the Son of God, what does that imply? He thought Christ had normal human vanity too. Oh, of course I'm the Son of God. I'll show you who the Son of God is. And, and he would then break his fast. But God had guided Jesus to start a 40-day fast and to be tremendously close to God to overcome this supernatural being that he was going to face and one of the greatest battles in all the history of the universe, the Son of God against the arch enemy. And so he had to be very humble, very yielded, in spite of the fact he did have human nature, as you know, it says back in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, if you're new, write this down, Hebrews 4 and verse 15. Hebrews 4:15 tells us Christ was tempted in all points like as we are. He did have a human pull. Is it wrong to be tempted? No. It's wrong to let the temptation roll around in your mind and entertain the temptation. Is it wrong for a young man to look at a pretty girl and say, boy, she's pretty. She's really got a pretty figure and a pretty face, and, and that's okay. Otherwise, you girls would never, ever get married. We would just think you're so many telephone poles over here, and the human race would cease to exist. There wouldn't be any people. But if a young man sees a pretty girl, and then he rolls that vision of her around in his mind in a wrong way, and makes a sex object out of her and goes through the whole thing in his own mind, that is what's wrong, entertaining the temptation. So Jesus had a powerful desire to do what Satan did. Boy, you could just give the word, and suddenly he'd have every type of delicious food that he could imagine, because he could have done that. He was the Son of God, but he didn't. And so he was not weak in that way or in any other way. But Satan came after him on that very point, the point of weakness, first of all. And Jesus answered in a certain way. We wouldn't have thought of that. But here's another thing about dealing with Satan, brethren. If you're going to overcome Satan, you had better learn to not just read this book. I used to read this book a little bit back in high school and even more than the normal high school boy did because I was hearing Mr. Armstrong on the radio coming over XCG uh, down in Juarez, Ciudad Juarez, XCG, and they'd have these different American preachers and and uh, they'd have the uh, country western music and the the actual big station was was beamed up north uh, here. It was for the Americans. But I didn't really study the Bible because I didn't understand how until I came to Ambassador College and began to learn how to really read and mark and read and go back and review and read other scriptures and get the whole context and get up a whole subject study and to know how to really study. I used to just read a chapter or two in Matthew and a chapter or two of Psalms and a chapter or two in Revelation or a chapter or two here and there, and that was it. I didn't know how to study. 
And many of you brethren here, and I'm preaching to all the brethren around the world too as well as you know, who will get this sermon later, and they won't have 80 people over the beak. The other churches will be more more dedicated than you are today. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they won't have a beach party uh, or, or uh, an outing at this time. But anyway, I'm kidding, of course. We're glad to have them have that outing. But at any rate, I think all of us have got to learn in the church of God to really study to drink enough to go over this and mark it. My wife thinks I overmark things, and I think I probably do, but I have red and, and, and blue and blue and, and arrows where a key thing is, and I circle certain words and mark on down from one word inter, intercepts with another verse down here and helps explain it and all that kind of thing. So my Bible's all marked up to where my wife says you can't even read it very well, <laughs> but I can. Anyway, you need to learn to really study. Each of you will have your own way of marking the Bible different from mine and that's good but learn to really drink in of it and feed on it feed on it just drink in and feed on the bible to where you begin to think like god thinks because that bible the words of god are flushing through your mind and the more that happens the more you begin to think like god thinks christ of course didn't just study the bible he was the bible in a sense he was the word and this is the word in print and he was the word as as the personality who inspired this word so he immediately thought of the best answer turn these stones into bread and so he said it is written and of course the father inspired christ and they both inspired this man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of god what was that? Where was that written? Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. So it was all from the Bible. And Christ inspired this. So you're to live by every word of God. You cannot live by every word of God. You can't fight Satan and his misapplication and perversion of Scripture unless you really understand the Bible and read the Bible. How can you live by every word if you haven't even read every word of the Bible? You've got to read it, study it, think about it. So that's a key thing, brethren. Then the devil took him up to the holy city to the, set him on a pinnacle, a great high port of the temple of God, this beautiful building they had back there, and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. What does Satan do? Satan doesn't come at you with uh, two pitched uh, pitchfork and two horns on his head and, and say, well, look here, I'm Satan the devil, and I'm here to deceive you. He doesn't do that. He comes as an angel of light, the Bible also shows us, and Satan quotes Scripture. He has ministers, and that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, by the way. You might want to put that in your notes. I didn't get time to verse, read all the verses on Satan today in this sermon, but 1 Corinthians 11 shows that Satan... No, the 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Satan has ministers. Satan has ministers. And you've got to understand that and realize they quote the Bible. Of course they quote the Bible. Satan himself kept quoting the Bible to Jesus. But he used the Bible to knock down Satan's arguments. For it is written, Jesus said, He shall give his angels charge concerning you. Uh, Satan told him that. And then, uh, uh, then lest you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered, verse 7, It is written again. He used the correct scripture to show that no... You, God will protect you, but you are not supposed to try to kill yourself and then say, well, I'm going to jump off this building. You protect me anyway. You're not to deliberately tempt God or put God to an unnecessary test. Don't do that. 
Okay, God, I'm going to jump in front of a train. You've got to protect me. No, you, he does not have to protect you like that. He, it says here, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So he quoted Deuteronomy 6.16 here to show that that was not the way to do. He quoted scripture right back because he understood the scripture. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain. And, of course, it was all in some tremendous vision-type experience and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And here Jesus was in the human flesh, a 30-year-old young man, just starting out his full adult life. And that would have been a pull on a normal young man. Boy, I want that power. The marching legions, the beautiful dancing girls, and all this all over the Roman Empire, the glory, the power, the magnificence. That's what they had at that time. And he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world and their glory if you'll fall down and just worship me. Then Jesus said, he didn't even quite quote scripture. Well, he did, but he, he gave him the command first because that was way out of line. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Under no circumstances are you to worship Satan. I've had people who were demon-influenced or demon-possessed say, well, let's just, they even took my arm, let's just kneel down and pray. I said, no, I'm in charge here. We will kneel down and pray. If I say so, I'm not going to let them guide the situation because if I see they are demon-influenced, they will begin to take charge. Satan wants to get you to do something, and what he would tell you to do may not always be directly wrong. But it's wrong to let him influence you directly or through some other human being where you are beginning to follow his direction. Of course, this was totally wrong what Satan was saying here. Away with you. You're only to serve God. And we are never to serve Satan, even though it seems to be a good thing at the time for some reason. Then the devil saw he was getting nowhere and he left him. But the devil didn't go and commit suicide. <laughs> he keeps at it, as we know. He kept coming back and coming back. At the very end of Christ's life, he tried to influence Judas to betray Christ. He kept trying to kill Christ again and again to the very end until God permitted him to. He was the one that helped orchestrate this whole thing. And then he thought he'd won until three days and three nights and Christ was resurrected from the dead. And he overcame Satan in many different ways, including that. So let's understand that Satan will try to find your weakness and he will come after you and he'll come after you again and again. He is the enemy. He is the adversary. He hates God. And why does he especially hate us? Brethren, he must hate us in the living church of God more than most people on earth because we're the main church that talks more about becoming kings and priests practicing, learning, and practicing the government of God and getting ready to be those kings and priests who are going to do what? We are going to replace Satan, and we are training right now to replace Satan and replace his demons. And they don't like that. We become their number one enemy. So they will try to come at us in every way that they can. Now turn, if you would, to Second Corinthians chapter 4, uh, in your New Testament here, Second Corinthians chapter 4, brethren. And again, a familiar scripture to many of you, but many of your newer brethren are not as familiar. Second Corinthians 4 and verse 3, Paul wrote, But even if our gospel is veiled, a kind of a veil put over it where it's hard to understand, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
Here again, the new King James is better because it, I think, I forget how the old King James, but it's an active, it's an active perishing. We're not perished yet, but we are perishing. Whose minds, the God of this age, this age, this eon, the age that we're living in, this 6,000 year period has been turned over to mankind under the influence of Satan the devil to go our own way to write the lessons of human suffering. We are not yet learning those lessons, that is, the world as a whole, hopefully we are, but they are writing those lessons so later on when God opens their minds in tomorrow's world or in the great white throne judgment, then they can look back and see, wow, what fools we were. What fools we were. We did everything wrong, and which they've done. Virtually everything you can imagine they've done wrong. So they're writing the lessons for this 6,000-year period, but he is the God of this age, and he's blinded those who do not believe. Brethren, sometimes we had an, uh, a letter uh, that was brought the other day from someone who was asking, well, does God blind people or Satan blind people? Well, a lot of things like this, I, 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 didn't, I didn't try to get back to Mr. Amen. I'm sure he came up with the right answer, but... God blinds people. Some scriptures say God blinds people. And others like this say Satan has blinded people. It's, both answers are true because God allows, and frankly in a certain sense uses Satan to blind people. It's within God's will, if you follow me. So he allows Satan to be there to be part of the obstacle course. If you're going to be a good Marine or you're going to be a Navy CB, or you're going to be uh, uh, some of these hotshot groups, they put you through tremendous obstacle courses, as you know. You'll have to crawl on your belly under live machine gun fire and swim, you know, swim the broadest uh, river and climb the highest hill and everything else they can make you do to be sure you can make it. God is putting us through, in a sense, a test, an obstacle course, to make sure we are willing to surrender to our Creator that gives us life and breath. He's not going, trying to lose us. He will give us every help. But He does make sure that we are willing to go out, out, that we want eternal life. Some people grow up in the church and they take it for granted. But many who've come in from the outside, they appreciate, wow, how blinded they were, how wrong they are out there, and they appreciate it even more. So we have to appreciate it and be willing to fight for it, in a sense. We're to fight the good fight of faith. Satan has blinded those who, believe, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So God blinds people, in a sense, through Satan the devil. He allows Satan to do that for him. And that's a certain uh, thing. Satan is the God of this age. I remember back in Methodist Sunday School how we sang this song over and over, and I've talked to a number of you, and many of you sang it in the Presbyterian or Baptist or whatever churches, this old Protestant Sunday School song, This is my Father's world, remember that? And so on. We sang that song over and over. Well, this is not our Father's world. That is God, the Father. This is, this is Satan's world. And the world goes along, little kids, they're innocent, they don't know, that attitude is pumped into their mind, but this is just God's world and everything around must be okay. It is not okay. Most of it is exactly the opposite, or in many ways opposite at least, what God would want and what God would have and what will be in tomorrow's world when Christ is on this earth. I could start spending half an hour 
you know, describing all that, but most of you know those things. So it's not God's world at all, and we have to really deeply, profoundly understand that that we're pioneers of the kingdom of God, and we are strangers and pilgrims, like Abraham realized he was. And we're living in a world that is not God's world, and we've got to be constantly aware of that. Love the people around us, pray for them, try to set us an ex- them an example, serve them, realize they're blinded, just like we all used to be blinded, but nevertheless not assume that they're that they know the truth. They're going to have little. I was hearing this wonderful. Uh, the CD that we have of Mr. Roger Bryant. I've told you about that, singing these wonderful religious songs. And uh, they had the Holy City, and it's a part of the song about the Holy City. It's a beautiful song, but part of it's pagan, of course, because he said the Holy City and everyone, no one was turned away, or everyone who could come in came in. Well, of course, that's not the case at all. I just was reading that this morning in my Bible study, it shows that it describes the holy city, and without our cowards and whoremongers and liars and all the rest of it, they're not in the holy city, and they're not going to be in the holy city until they repent. And here at the very end, of course, those are the ones that did not repent, and they're left out. So God doesn't say, come as you are. Some of these Protestant churches say, come as you are. God does not say, come as you are. The first thing Jesus said over and over, you know, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and he said, repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist started out his ministry, repent. That's the first word. Peter preached the first sermon for the church of God on the day of Pentecost in verse 31. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and so on. That's the first word. Be sorry, but so overwhelmingly sorry, with deep sorrow, and a sense of horror of what you've done, that you're willing to turn around and go the other way. That's what real repentance involves. So Satan takes advantage. He gets close to it. That's why I wrote that booklet on Satan's counterfeit Christianity, They have these little kids singing about Jesus. But which Jesus? And this is my father's world. Well, which father? Satan is the father of the false ones. And Jesus told the Pharisees that. He is your father, Satan the devil. So the real father, this is not the the world of God, the father at all. And we have to understand how Satan puts a little subtle twist on all that stuff and deceives the world where what they have is sometimes so close and yet so far away with that little twist that makes it wrong. He is very clever. Turn back to John, if you would, the Gospel of John, and turn to chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. Here in John 12, a voice came from God in verse 29. They thought it thundered, and Jesus said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake... And verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. You see, the judgment of that world, of this world was beginning as Christ brought the full truth and the world rejected it. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler cast out? Well, that shows God is not the ruler. He's not going to be cast out. Satan, uh, Jesus is not cast out. The ruler of this world is Satan the devil. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Notice chapter 14, John chapter 14 now, 
and beginning here in verse 30. He said, I will no longer talk much with you, he told the people there, for the ruler of this world. Who is the ruler of this world? The ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. And, of course, Satan was coming in the person of Judas Iscariot. And he had nothing to do with him. Back in chapter 13, remember, uh, it says here how Jesus began the process of, uh, Judas began the process of betraying Christ, and they were eating the Passover, and someone asked him, who's going to betray you? And he says, whoever dips with me in the dish. And so at verse 27, John 13 John 13, verse 27. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Satan, the devil, directly, personally entered Judas. Then Judas, or Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Jesus knew what he was going to do, and the others did not. If you're going to betray me, let's get it over with, whatever. What you do, do quickly. So Satan personally possessed. It wasn't just a local demon it was Satan the devil personally came in to Judas Iscariot trying once again to destroy Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was constantly fighting Christ. And he will come after us in every way he can because except for Christ, we are his main enemies because we are beginning to get ready to replace him and his demons ruling this world. And Satan does not like that. So, brethren, one key in overcoming Satan, you must know your enemy. You can't really overcome Satan unless you know how he is. You've got to know that he's real. You've got to know the power that he has. You've got to know how he operates. And I could just give you an overview here, but I thought it was helpful at this time to do this. We really need to understand the enemy we're fighting. I think I've told you the story before about General, old General Blood and Guts Patton, they called him, was going to face Rommel. And many military historians think that General Irvin Rommel, the Nazi uh, general, Adolf Hitler's general in North Africa, was the most brilliant general in the entire Second World War. If Rommel had had the tanks and the planes and the guns and all the Detroits and Chicago's and Seattle's and San Francisco's and L.A. shipyards and tank companies and every, all the equipment, you know, that, that Patton and Eisenhower had, he probably would have beat them. He was a great general. Nothing wrong with him. But Patton was going to fight him. And Patton was very brilliant. He was a kind of quirky guy, but he was smart. And so he read, they said, hundreds of hours and thousands of uh, pages of material about Rommel, which military school, you know, between wars, they all talk and open up to each other and talk and they learn how they work and so on. He read everything he could find about General Rommel, where he went to school, what his attitudes were, what kind of strategies he would use. He wanted to get inside his head so he could know what to do. I think most of you know that in the, even the professional football teams, what do they do on the weekend? Do they just sit around and do nothing? No, during the season, they will often play. They will find that they're playing Detroit next week. They will get the Detroit videos from that game, and they will see what Detroit used, what, what games, what uh, strategies they used, what plays they used last week, 
what kind of defense tactics they use, and so on, who are their strong players, who are their weak players, and they will try to plan how to beat Detroit the next week by watching the videos of Detroit the last week or two. You see what I mean? They try to get inside the head of their opponent to understand him. So we need to, one of the key strategies is know your enemy. Know your enemy and think the Satan's going to try to get me this way and that way and I'm not going to let him do it. And you've got to understand that and realize that you are, in fact, in a war. I'm in a war. We're all in a war. Not be afraid of it. It's exciting when you think about it. It's a challenge, but that's where we are. We are in a spiritual battle. Turn now, if you would, to Ephesians in your New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, brethren. Ephesians chapter 2, I mean. Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 1. Paul writing to them, he said, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, most of the Ephesians had been pagans. And they'd been worshiping Diana of the Ephesians. And they'd been in all kinds of sex orgies and drunkenness and so on. It was the great center of Diana worship in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan is called a prince, the prince of the power of the air. What does that tell us? The air is the atmosphere around us. What comes through this atmosphere? Not just air to breathe, but the radio waves, the television waves, if we want to use that terminology, all the media comes at us. Satan is in charge of all that. He is heavily, powerfully influencing Hollywood. He's influencing the kind of music we listen to, the kind of television shows that we see, the kind of movies that we see, the kind of stuff that comes out over the Internet and so on. Horrible, rotten, foul things. And most of you younger kids know that if you're in your late teens or 20s. Some of the grandmas sitting out here may not fully understand it. You don't even want to understand it, probably. I understand that. But you need to realize these young men here, they're all, uh, have all their testosterone and all they have to do is push a button and they can see everything that your mind can possibly imagine. Most of them understand that. And it's just a foul, foul world, things that I could never have done. I grew up with normal human nature, uh, very normal. You can ask my sister Catherine about it. And I liked girls and was dancing, and we were going to try to play post office and have kissing games and, and try to neck a little bit once in a while if we could, kiss them a whole bunch of times. That was all very exciting back in Joplin High School. But... Some of us boys wanted to see some really hot stuff one time, and we couldn't find any exciting thing like that in Joplin. We heard there was a really exciting movie about 10 miles away over in Webb City, a nearby city, and it, it, was, it said that it was a movie about mom and dad and supposed to be about sex. We thought, boy, we're going to go see this. <laughs> we went over there at Monty Taylor's station wagon, and our parents didn't know it, of course. And we went in this movie, and they turned out the lights, and it was about preventing venereal disease. Oh, no, it wasn't exciting at all. They kind of, kind of a clinical movie, but they called it Mom and Dad, and they didn't show any naked women or anything exciting to us at all. So we got up, and we didn't even see the whole movie. We were very disappointed, and we came back to somewhere and had some hamburgers and, and ice cream or something, I guess, to assuage our pain. But you, you, they, didn't even, they didn't even have things like that back there that they have today. So 
you kids that grow up in this society, it's, I feel for you because if I had grown up today, I would have had a harder life, I'm sure. I just did not have that. And uh, But the, the devil is the god of this age, and he has really saturated things today with every foul thing that could possibly be imagined. So he's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. He is a spirit being, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So he is trying to work. Satan does not get tired. He's a spirit being. He never gets tired. He never gets run. He keeps after us and keeps after us, and he will find your weakness and try to get you turned away in any way he can. And you've got to understand that, and you really have to have God's help. Another way to understand Satan, how he works a little bit, is back here in Job. Turn back in your Old Testament to where that righteous Job was being tempted, and God allowed this, of course, as you'll see. Turn back to Job chapter 1. Remember the few verses, the first few verses tell us about how Job was blameless and upright and and he was the greatest of all the people of the East and prayed to God and even prayed for his children that they wouldn't do anything wrong. And so it says in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. How could that be said of demons? Well, even angels are sons of God by virtue of creation. So it's talking here about angels. And uh, among them, Satan came among them. And the Eternal said to Satan, a rebel angel, From where do you come? And Satan answered, From going up and down on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? So he tried to get Satan to think about that. Here was a man that really would obey God. There's none like him, blameless, upright, who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan answered, does God or does Job fear God for nothing? You've blessed him and have blessed his family and everything he does. But now stretch out your hand, touch all his hand, and he'll curse you to your face. Now, frankly, God knew that Satan, that Job did have one big problem. And his one big problem was self-righteousness. He did tend to be self-righteous. And uh, you go back, he, he said in various ways through the book, if you read it carefully, it was it was understandable that he felt that way, but he said, "My righteousness I maintain," and things like that. And uh, rather than realizing I really have made some mistakes, he never admitted to any mistakes until the end. He thought he was so good, and God knew that that would hurt him in the end. So he allowed Satan to tempt him, even though Satan never did figure out what his real problem was. So God said, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only don't lay a hand on his person. So God did not allow Satan to kill Job personally or even his body, hurt him at that first. So then we find that his sons and daughters were having a big banquet and and here all these things started to happen. And God allowed Satan to do this. And notice here at verse 7, while he was still speaking, that some had killed the servants of this household and while this man was still speaking another came and said the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you what? fire? yes Satan fire is something in this earth's atmosphere and God allows Satan the devil to bring fire from time to time and you'll read right back in Revelation 13 about the great false prophet. Revelation chapter 13 will bring fire down from heaven. 
Brethren, that is going to happen in the lifetimes of many of you. May not, some of us older ones might not be here. Uh, we may be here. God may give us extra strength. But whether we're alive or not, it doesn't make any difference. This is going to happen. Satan is going to bring fire down from heaven. This coming false prophet is a human being that's alive on this earth somewhere today. And that great false church will bring fire down from heaven. Revelation chapter 13, I think is verse 13. And this happened back there. Satan the devil did was allowed to do this. And then uh, while he was still speaking, then they describe how uh, the Chaldeans formed three bands and killed some others. And then another uh, man came, says, Your sons and daughters, in verse 18, were drinking wine, and suddenly a great wind. Satan is the god of this atmosphere. The wind. Does, who controls the weather? Again, God controls the weather overall. But does God allow Satan to bring fire? Does he allow Satan to bring terrible winds and storms on occasion to afflict people? Yes, he does. And this shows that. Other scriptures do too, but this shows that very clearly. So some of these terrible things are sent not just because God says, I'm going to punish Florida. Remember, we had terrible, four terrible hurricanes that came through Florida, one right after the other several years ago. That may be because Satan hates Israel. Satan hates physical Israel, God's birthright people. He knows who we are, even though many of our people don't even know who they are. And he certainly hates spiritual Israel, the church. But he's going to come after us in the church. And God is allowing Satan to come after physical Israel. And he brought these things. And some of these things may be caused, not just that God does it, but allows Satan to do it. To punish his people, to humble them, to shake them in the hope that they will repent. But most of them have not repented yet. But as these things begin to increase, brethren, you know, if we're going to have more horrible hurricanes and earthquakes and more Katrina-like uh, terrible disasters and tsunamis in Southeast Asia and uh, other things like that, disease epidemics all over the world and so on, we can understand and pray that God will help these people themselves all over begin to wake up and God may use that to shake them, to make them realize this is something that this church over here has been talking about and this is real stuff and I had better wake up and start listening to them and obey the God of the Bible. God can help people in that way. But he allowed this to come on Job and on his family. And then verse 20, Job arose and tore his robe, fell on the ground and worshiped and said, Naked I came forth from my mother's womb. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So his attitude was perfect. His attitude was outstanding. But God allowed this to happen, and Satan controls the weather, and Satan will try to get at us in various ways, even the nation of Israel, by bringing terrible plagues on us of various sorts. Sometimes we can't always be sure, did God do it, or he allowed Satan to do it at any rate. But Satan is, is there and involved many, many times, and we need to understand that. So Satan will... In that sense, he will attempt to strike physically Israel as he can, as well as the church. And Satan will try to strike all of us in many ways. And all of us need to realize he'll come at us from this direction one time and another direction another time. And you've got to be aware of that, brethren. He won't always try to tempt you in exactly the same way every time. 
Notice how God is in charge, or Satan, I mean, is in charge, again, under God's overall authority, but of the nations. He is the God of this age. He is the invisible power behind the pagan nations of this world. Turn back to Daniel, if you would. Daniel chapter 10 at this point. Daniel chapter 10. Here Daniel had been praying and fasting and seeking God. And in verse 11, this angel came and said, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak. Stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. So that's a wonderful thing. Daniel, man greatly beloved. Boy, I would love to have an angel come and tell me that. You read that three times here in a short period of about two chapters, that Daniel was a man greatly beloved. So he stood trembling. There was a powerful spirit being. You know, sometimes as a kid, when I first started reading these things, I thought, well, you know, I'm Rod Meredith from Joplin, Missouri, and I used to have rock fights, and I was a go, I know nothing like that would make me shake and tremble. But I think it would. I think all of us don't realize. We've seen stuff on TV, but if there was really an eminence that just suddenly appeared, and it was kind of, kind of, in a sense, uh, giving off electrical power, and you sent that this was something way beyond anything you'd ever dreamed of, it probably would, would scare the fire out of you. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so, uh, we do need to understand this. This, this happened, and Daniel was not a sissy at all. He, he was willing to let them throw him in the lion's den and all the rest of it. But this was different. So he was trembling. And then the angel said, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, he began to cry out, Please help us understand, O God, why we're here or in Babylonian captivity. It goes on and on and on. How long, O God, please deliver us from the time you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself your words were heard, and I have come because of your word. Notice verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, who's that? Must have been another angel, a spirit being in charge of the literal, whoever it was, king or dictator or whatever he was called, of Persia, the ancient Iranians. The Iranians are Persians. They're not Arabs. So the prince of the Persian uh, kingdom was, uh, withstood me 21 days. A normal man would not have been able to do this. This was another angel being, withstood this angel. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, remember there were three super archangels called cherubs, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Each was in charge, apparently, of a third of the angels. And when Lucifer rebelled, and brethren, it's kind of scary to think about it. How many did he take? He must have taken virtually every one of his third because it indicates that back in Revelation. One third of the angels followed him. He is powerful. So Michael, one of the other top angels, super archangels, Carib, was sent in to rescue and to fight him. So then Michael came, one of the chief princes came to help me. This normal angel had to have help. For I had been left alone with the kings of Persia. And now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days. And then a little later he said, in verse 20, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. See, going back to fight a what? A spirit war. You have a spirit war going on here between angels and archangels. And when I have gone forth... 
indeed the prince, prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince, that other cherub, that other super archangel. So we have to understand there are spirit wars that have been raging through the centuries when angels would be involved. When Adolf Hitler rose up, brethren, and many of you older people have probably read books along this line. I've read the account in several different books about the Bormann Brotherhood and and uh, Hitler, uh, this and that, and I don't remember all the names of the books, but five or ten I've read parts of over the years, and some of the top men around Hitler who were big, strong generals and other people said that when Hitler would go into one of his rages, some of these big, tough guys were shaking. He wasn't just raging against them. They sensed that he was a man possessed. They used that term. Possessed? Possessed of what? <laughs> you know what I think? He was possessed by the devil, and they sensed a supernatural personality grabbed hold of Adolf Hitler, and he was a different man. A different look came over his face, and he was a different man. Satan was personally influencing and at times apparently possessing Adolf Hitler as he has other powerful dictators and they, some of these terrible butchers and, and people that have tortured people and so on down through the centuries. So there has been a spirit war going every now and then because Satan has his, his kingdoms and he has his minions in charge of those kingdoms. Let's turn back, if you would, now at this point, uh, brethren, to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. This tells us about the final, not the final battle, actually. That's in Revelation uh, uh, 20. But, in other words, one of the great final battles. It says in Revelation 12 and verse 1, a great sign appeared in the heaven. And again, most of you know this, talking about ancient Israel and crying out, and bringing forth the Messiah. And then a great dragon, a fiery red dragon appears, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. This is Satan the devil who has been in charge of the ancient Roman Empire. And it's describing Satan the devil in this way. And his tail, the devil, drew a third of the stars of heaven. And back in Revelation 1, verse 20, it identifies stars as angels. That's the way the Bible interprets this itself. He drew a third of them and threw them to the earth. So Satan was able to get virtually all the entire third of the angels to rebel with him. And the dragon stood before the woman, ancient Israel, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. He was going to kill the Christ. And remember, he caused Herod to try to kill all the little baby boys under two years old for miles and miles around, hoping that would somehow destroy this young man who was supposed to be Messiah. He was the local Roman governor, and he wasn't going to have any Messiah in his territory to replace him. You see, he tried to kill everybody. But anyway... She bore, ancient Israel bore, a male child who was to rule all nations. So this is Christ with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. It's jumping ahead years and now from the time of his birth till the time he was caught up. Thirty-three years later, it jumps ahead. Then, now it jumps ahead, uh, you know, about 500 years and uh, until the church fled into the wilderness and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. The church of God during the dark ages 
And they're correctly named the Dark Ages because they were guided by black-robed, dark-looking Catholic monks and bishops who taught a complete paganism and called it Christianity. They turned light into darkness. They twisted everything that Jesus had taught. And they branded on the so-called Christianity of that time the whole pagan system that's come right on over into the Protestant world today. Go read my book that's entitled Satan's Counterfeit Christianity and you find that author after author, they understand that. That's what Satan has done. So she fled into the wilderness and they nourished her there a 1,260 days. Normally a day equals a year in Bible prophecy. And as you know, in Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6 and Numbers 14, 34, it indicates that. So 1,260 years would be from 554 until 1814 when this system was reigning. 1,260 days. And war broke out. So then it comes past that time. And then you come to the end of the age. And brethren, one of the false prophets of the church of God in our time has said this war has already taken place. He said that three to five years ago I read in his magazine. And uh, he, he has no understanding of most of this at all, frankly. I was his Bible teacher, so I'm at fault, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, he jumped the track. But the war, I'll just tell you, the war has not taken place. This war has not yet taken place. When this final war in heaven takes place, you are going to see these dictators in Europe begin to uh, have a look on their face and an attitude against America and against God and everything else way beyond what is today. There are many of them are good and decent men over there now. It's going to be the devil directly moving in and taking control, and the church of God is going to undergo terrible persecution. Well, if this war took place three to five years ago, like this guy wrote, the church of God would be undergoing terrible persecution. Well, neither Mr. Ames nor I nor any of us have been been beaten up or thrown in jail or anything. If you, you follow me, we're still blessed, and this war has not yet taken place. I'll just tell you that. But the war is coming. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, Satan the devil. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was the place found for them in heaven any longer. So Satan and his demons are trying to fight God one last time to conquer God himself. It shows the arrogance they have. They're completely blinded. And then they were cast back down. And that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world most of you know that, but look it up. Revelation 12, verse 9, it describes Satan the devil who deceives the whole world. That's what it says. It says that the whole world has been deceived by Satan. He is the God of this entire world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then he hears this voice crying out, now salvation and strength have come to God and the power of Christ for the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. Satan then will have been cast down finally and they overcame him. How? How will you and I and many of our brethren overcome Satan at that time? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Brethren, we've got to ask God to forgive us and to forgive us and to forgive us and to be genuinely humble before our God and cry out to God, say, clean us up and scrub us out. 
We've got to have his mercy or we will not be able to make it. And the word of their testimony, we've got to constantly study this book. We've got to be filled with the word of God and with the mind of Christ so that we can say and do the right thing based on this. And if you and I are going to make it into God's kingdom, this a little aside, I've used this phrase before 10 or 25 times in sermons. It's kind of hard, but I got to thinking about it again as we approach the Holy Day season. Brethren, with all of our heart, if we're going to make it in the years just ahead of us, and some of us are getting old, we may be facing our final trial, and we better be sure our attitude is right. We have got to learn to think as God thinks. We have got to learn to feel as God feels. And we have got to want what God wants. All those things. Please think about that. And do you think as God thinks? I don't do that all the time at all. I have my, well, I'm this and that. Then I realize, no, that's not really what God thinks. You've got to study the Bible and go back and, and get God's mind. Learn to think as God thinks. Feel as God feels. Well, I'm upset. I haven't been fair. This went okay. Is that the way God thinks? Would that be the attitude of Christ? And you've got to want what God wants. I can say, well, God's got to heal me now, and I'm, I'm the only one still around from way back then, so he's got to keep me going another 10 or 15 years. Is that the way God feels? If I go to God and say, God, you've got to do this, I would be afraid to do that. I think he might check me out, you know, right now or tomorrow. Say, Meredith, it's time for you to check out. Punch the checkout machine. You're gone. <laughs> you know, your history. We don't have that attitude. We better realize that we are weak. Our life is like a vapor. It's here for just a little while, and then we're gone. And we've got to have the profound fear of God to where we say in our heart, and we mean it, Father, my life is your life. My possessions are your possessions. My wife is your wife, in a sense. My family is your family. My house is your house. My strength is your strength. The years of my life, I'd like to live more. The years of my life are your years. It's up to you. Can I actually serve more by being here? Maybe there's some younger man that will come along and do much better. If that is the case, then I should want that. You know what I mean? I may not be quite as anxious about it as a younger person would, but I should want that. Okay, God's will be done. That was Christ's attitude, to want what God wants. Anyway, we have to we have to overcome Satan in these wars, and he's going to throw everything at us that he can, but we've got to overcome him by Jesus Christ shed blood and the word of the testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Some, it indicates, some are going to wish to die during that time, as other scriptures indicate. They're going to be tortured, and they would rather die quick. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Brethren, the time is coming when this war really does take place, when terrible things are going to start very quickly after that. Are you going to be ready? Frankly, we're going to then have storms and disease epidemics and people going up and down the streets, maybe breaking into homes and beating up on people. It's not going to be fun stuff. It's not going to be fun stuff. He's going to come down and stir one up against another, different classes, different races, different churches, different religions. It's going to be awful. 
And Satan will get at us in different ways. And we all have to learn to love each other and to love God in spite of Satan's tactics. He will try to get at us in every way he can. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Satan is coming down. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, the true church of God. Now it's talking, who gave birth to the child. But the woman, this is now the true church, obviously, was given two wings of a great eagle that she, as the ancient church, fled during the dark ages. Here, once again, the church flies into her place, into the wilderness. Heaven is never called a wilderness, believe me. The church is not taken in a rapture up to heaven. The church has to flee, and God has to supernaturally protect His church somewhere on this earth. We don't know where that is. It might be Petra, But it may not be. Mr. Armstrong said Petra is the most logical place if the Bible indicates. But there are little hints. The Bible does not say it clear enough that we can be sure. I would not want to base one-tenth of my salvation on the Petra being the place. I wouldn't bet against it, but you know what I mean. We don't have to know that. We just have to have faith that God will bring us to the right place if we really serve Him with our whole heart. If we say, Father... I want to think as you think. I want to feel as you feel. And I want to want what you want. I want to give my life to you and hold nothing back. That's what God wants. That's the attitude. That's hard. But God says before you become a very God in the kingdom of God and the family of God forever, I need to know where you stand. And he's going to test us and test us until he knows where we stand. So she flies into her place, and she's nourished for three and a half years. You know, the word time often means a year. Time, and then two times, and then half a time from the face or the presence of the, of the serpent, the devil. So the devil spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. And this is apparently a flood of armies, brethren, if we've never explained that. But you look back, if you want to write something down, write it down now. Jeremiah 46, verse 7 Jeremiah 46, verse 7, and Isaiah 59, verse 19. Those places, other places, use the term flood as a flood of armies. So it may be a flood of armies that are trying to get at the woman. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And you think about that. Here's a powerful spirit being, brethren, who is enraged like a lion that's been denied something. And he's going to come and try to grab and destroy and tear down these people who oppose him. And we have got to fear God and really want to be protected from Satan the devil during this coming time. We really should. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring. See, a certain number are taken to a place of safety. Here are those who have not been watching They have not been praying. They apparently are not part of the work that's really being done. And they, the rest of her offspring, but who are they? Are they the devil's church? No, they're not the devil's church. They're the rest of the church of God who have not been counted worthy to be taken to a place of safety. The rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God, they're not Jews. Some people try to say these carnal guys, no, not ancient Israel, but they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They believe in Christ. They're part of the church of God. 
but they are not the church that is really totally yielded to God and doing His work. Well, we could give whole sermons on that, but I'll tell you, is it important to be in the right church? You'd better believe it. You can get your feelings hurt at Mr. Ames, or you can get your feelings hurt at Dr. Winnale or me or any one of us doing something, and we make mistakes. But if you allow that to take you out of the church, and you're not in the right place at the right time because of your attitude is wrong, uh, it's not going to hurt me. I'll still be here. God willing, I have to say, we always have to say God willing. <laughs> That's what my intention is, and I've tried to demonstrate that for 60 years. But at any rate, I fear for you. Don't ever let these things take you out of the true church. That's so important that you're in the right place. All right, turn, if you would, now to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and let's begin here in verse 10. Ephesians 6. I've got to get this thing. Oh, here it is. Ephesians chapter 6, brethren, and I want to begin reading in verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So we're in a spiritual battle. Put on the whole armor of God. Armor has to do with fighting, with the battle. We are in a fight. That you may be able to stand against the wiles. What are wiles? They're tricky ways. Satan uses tricky, uh, crafty ways to try to twist your mind and twist your attitudes and get at you in any way he can. The wiles of the devil. For, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We could get to thinking, well, we're against this person in the world or this person in the church has hurt us. Or No, we don't wrestle flesh and blood, but against principalities, against darkness, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against wicked spirits, as it can be translated, wicked spirits in heavenly places. We're fighting demons. We are fighting demons, wicked spirits in high places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God. Brethren, you need the whole armor to win the battle, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, Truth. What is truth? Thy word is truth. You've got to powerfully rank in of the Bible and feed on Christ to where you think like Christ thinks and know how you should think and act and feel. That's the most important thing. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the thing that covers your heart, your attitude, is righteousness. And having shod your feet, what do you do? Where do you walk? You're busy in the work with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Every one of us ought to thank every one of you. What can I give to the work of God? My time, my talents, my resources, my love and concern for others, my prayers, everything to pour and out in every way I can to build the work of God, to build the work of God, to prepare for God's kingdom. Be busy in that. Above all, taking the shield of faith. In that context, as a warrior, you have to have this shield to protect you from Satan's constant darts and spears coming at you. The shield of faith with which you are able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So the, the helmet protects your mind. That's where the Holy Spirit comes, a helmet to protect your mind and your attitude, and the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? Well, it's revealed in the Bible. The sword of the Spirit, of course, is the Word of God. 
This is the only offensive weapon we have. We've got to really understand this book so we can say, no, uh, Satan, I don't do this. I do this because this is what the book really says and all the rest of it. We've got to know this book and saturate our mind with it. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always. And brethren, don't forget that. Pray for one another. Pray for the ministry. Paul said, pray for me with supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, to pray for all the saints. And for me, Paul wrote, and I would say for all the ministry, that utterance may be given to us that we may open our mouths boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray fervently and ask God in heaven to intervene, to guide us, to use us, to protect us, and protect this work in the church of God from Satan the devil. We've got to do that and cry out to God for that. Back in uh, Matthew 13, if you turn there, Matthew 13 now, brethren, we have some parables here. And he gave the parable of the sower and the seed, and they didn't understand it. But notice verse 18. He begins to interpret this, the parable of the sower and the seed. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower, Jesus said. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Sometimes, as you know, you've had this happen with relatives or friends. They hear a program, and then immediately some friend comes and bangs on the door or something happens and just jerks their mind right away. It really hurt me when I've seen that happen. He quickly comes and tries to divert their attention away from the truth when they hear it in many different ways. He received the seed on stony places, verse 20. He hears the word, receives it with joy, but he has no root. He's very shallow, very shallow. And so when tribulation or persecution, he has a trouble with his job, he might start to lose his job, or one of the kids is getting in trouble in school because of Christmas or because of something, then he gives up real quick, and he stumbles. And he that received the word, verse 22, among thorns, this is applying to many of us probably, is he who hears the word, you see, we have taken it in more than these others, and the cares of this world, we get involved. A woman will just sincerely, it's not something evil, but without realizing it, she'll get her mind on her family and on her house and on her friends and on her activities and her women's clubs or whatever it is. And all these things take up her time. And she's not really seeking first God's kingdom. And a man will get involved in his business and making money. Maybe he makes a whole lot of money. Maybe he doesn't make a whole lot, but he just lets the thing just take his time and take his time and take his time and just draws him away from God. The cares of this world and sometimes even little things that don't involve success or lack, just even, uh, you know, we can get involved in fixing the house and everything goes wrong and you let somehow the repair situation or upset just drain your time sometimes. Just things take up your time. Satan will try to take your time if he can. He will try to take your time and get your divert, divert your attention away from God's kingdom. And so the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And of course, a person who has a lot of money, how many billionaires are in the church of God, including worldwide and all the rest of them? You know, zero. How many hundred millionaires? Zero. And so on. 
God does call the weak of the world rich in faith. And we have to understand that and love one another in spite of the fact that God is not calling the rich of this world because if a person has a lot of money, his mind will tend to be on that money and that could divert his attention from the kingdom of God more than perhaps he would realize. It could hurt him and hurt him terribly. And each of us needs to watch that if we have that happen to us in some way. And people that we know or love would have it. The deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he receives the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who bears fruit. See, he is busy helping others. He's busy building the work of God. He's busy strengthening the church. He's busy strengthening the church. He brings forth fruit, not just having a better attitude, but helping others as well and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So that's an important thing. These are things that Jesus gave where we can overcome Satan. And, of course, part of it is uh, where it says in verse 19, then the wicked one, Satan directly snatches away the word from people and so they can get distracted immediately away from God's word. So you must be alert, all of you. You've got to be alert. You have got to fight the spiritual warfare, and you've got to cry out for help. In Mark 9, Mark chapter 9, you may remember the story about this father. His son had a demon, a deaf and dumb demon, throwing his son into the, into the uh, fire at times and all kinds of horrible things, and the disciples could not cast it out. And so Jesus came and cast him out. And in verse 28, Mark 9 and verse 28 when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? Here were the ones who became the twelve apostles, and they couldn't do it. Why? And so he said, Jesus said, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. That's also on Matthew 17, verse 21. Prayer and and in the majority text, the received text, some modern texts leave out the word fasting. They're wrong. They don't like that. But we do. The God does it, and it does come out by prayer and fasting. That's what Jesus used, fasting, crying out to God, help me, Father, to be totally surrendered to you. And God gave him that strength. So as you face the devil in unusual trials, Learn to use, brethren, the tool of fasting because it is extremely important. Prayer and fasting. All right. Let's also remember one other way that Satan will try to get at us. And I want to turn now to Hebrews and your New Testament here. Hebrews chapter 12, if you would. In Hebrews 12... And beginning in verse 14, Hebrews 12, verse 14, God tells us, Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the eternal or will see the Lord, looking diligently lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. A root of bitterness... Mr. Herbert Armstrong has said a number of times, and I know Mr. Pardon will remember that. I don't think he's here. Maybe he's at the camp out. But at any rate, 
uh, he, we've talked about these, he, some of these things were said again and again to where he heard them as well many times. He said, bitterness is like, uh, cocaine or like some power, like heroin. It just gets you and grabs you and you virtually can't get rid of it. It's just awful. Don't ever get a root of bitterness. Once you get mad at so-and-so, different ones got mad at Mr. Armstrong because he personally corrected people sometimes very powerfully. Or they would get mad at the church. Or they'd get mad because of what happened with Ted. Or they would get mad because they thought he spent too much money. Or they would get mad at this or mad at that. Where are those people? God did not use them. A root of bitterness can destroy you. Don't ever let that happen to you. Always think, okay, this guy has a problem. This guy has a problem. Maybe it's you that have the problem. You better realize that too. Try to be sure. Sometimes it's your problem, and sometimes it's partly his problem and partly your problem. You know what I mean? But the big thing, God is still there. The truth is still there. There is one church on earth that God is going to be using more than any other to powerfully proclaim his work his word and to do his work and you'd better find where that church is and get over it whatever it is don't let a root of bitterness take you away from the creator or from his church a root of bitterness that's terribly important that you do not let that happen cry out to god how do you cry out to god back here at hebrews chapter 5 here it pictures hebrews 5 jesus christ Verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Christ must have been shaking and crying and bawling. I'm not kidding, bawling. Father, help me. I'm the only one who can save this world and Satan is after me and he, he's trying to destroy me and getting my mind distracted. And Jesus cried out with tremendous vehement cries and tears to the one who was able to save him. And though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned what it was like to obey God and that wasn't easy. He was tempted at all points like as we are. So we've got to go all out to, dis- to overcome Satan, brethren. We're in a powerful warfare. Back in chapter 5 now, 1 Peter 5, I should say. 1 Peter chapter 5, and let's begin in verse 5. We've been talking here about the shepherds and how the ministers had to be shepherds to the flock and do it humbly. Verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. And again, brethren, that's not easy. How do you be clothed with humility all day long? You don't have to look at the ground and feel like you're worth nothing all day long. God doesn't want you to do that. But to realize constantly comparing yourselves not among yourselves, but comparing yourself to Jesus Christ, say, I am so imperfect. I need to do better. I need to honor God. I need to give my life to God. I need to give everything I have to God, and I need to do it better with all my heart. I really mean that. So we've got to be clothed with humility in the right way. For God resists the proud. Anyone who's proud think I've got it made. I understand all this and that. Well, I've met many men in the work. When they got a big job and a big office, it went to their head. I could start naming names all around. I'm sorry, but I had 60 years to see that happen and learn those lessons. 
It's awful what can happen if someone is not clothed with humility, how that can get them and kill them. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care. He will exalt you, brethren, if you give your life to God. Don't think you have to do it for nothing. He will exalt you, but he will exalt you in due time, you see, in his way, in his time. It will be magnificent when Christ returns in all the glory of the Father with his holy angels. Wow! Are we going to be happy and grateful that we've been willing to hang in there? Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober. Be alert. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, yes, he is our enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. You've got to resist the devil with all your heart crying out to God with tears if you have to, like Jesus did, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us into, as it should be, His eternal glory, we're called into that very glory that Christ has by Christ Jesus, when? After you have suffered a while. Yes, we have to go through the trials and tests first. After you have suffered a while. Perfect establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So overcome Satan. Learn how he works. I've tried to give you an overview of it, even more illustrations than usual, how he operates. Resist him and go all out. Recognize you're in a real spiritual warfare. And as Sir Winston Churchill told the British people during the Battle of London, And during the war there, when they were being pounded by the bombers, never, 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 ever give up. (laughs) Don't do that. It's worth it. Hang in there, and you will gain eternal life, and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. But you won't. Never, ever give up. 